the CPHI podcast series. I'm Lucy Chard, Digital Editor for CPHI Online, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Gil Roth of the Pharma and Biopharma Outsourcing Association about current outsourcing and manufacturing trends. Gil Roth is the president of the Pharma and Biopharma Outsourcing Association, known as the BPOA, which is a non-profit trade group advocating for the regulatory, legislative and general business interests of the CMO-CDMO sector. Gill founded the BPOA in 2014 after a 15-year run as the founding editor of Contract Pharma magazine and has grown the membership from an initial slate of 15 companies to more than 45. Gill delves into the most exciting aspects of outsourcing and manufacturing, including some of the biggest areas of innovation and technology, such as cell and gene therapeutics. We also get an update on the industry as a whole since the COVID-19 pandemic and how companies are adapting to changes in the market and regional trends. It was a real privilege to be able to speak with Gil and to get to hear his extensive knowledge on the subject. So Gil, thank you so much for joining me today. I'll just jump straight in with the first question. Could you give a bit of background, a bit of context into the key aspects in outsourcing and manufacturing in the pharmaceutical industry? Sure. And thanks for having me on, Lucy. I appreciate it. The sector of contract manufacturing organizations, CMOs, and then contract development and manufacturing organizations and CDMOs, it's really a multi-decade process in which they become part of the, the pharmaceutical ecosystem. And these are companies that you know provide services both in commercial manufacturing and in all the development stages for my world, primarily on the dosage form side, but this area covers active pharmaceutical ingredients, intermediates, and other aspects of of the drug world. And it's something that began, as far as I know, and I came in in 1999, uh, it began, I think, in the 80s into 90s as pharma companies were rationalizing their internal networks of manufacturing, and they were starting to spin out facilities in some cases, there'd be a management buyout and companies would uh, form just around the manufacturing operations themselves, usually with a trailing supply agreement with the pharma company that was selling the uh, uh, facility out. From there, they would start to develop business, bring in new customers, new clients. And really, over the, the past couple of decades, it's grown in importance in terms of empowering the well, not just the large-scale pharmaceutical companies that were looking at lifecycle management and other ways of, of rationalizing their networks, but really empowering startups, getting companies that had you know two guys in a garage with a molecule, giving them the the tools and the ability to to start you know advancing the formulation, getting into clinical trials. And when I was starting out, the goal was primarily for those sorts of companies to get to phase two, you know, prove that the the compound had merit and sell to a larger pharma company. And what we've seen over the years, it's partly driven by changes in R&D, certain types of patient populations, as well as changes in the economics of pharma. Now we're seeing startups sticking with CDMOs, going all the way into commercialization and essentially being virtual pharmas, having the, the R&D pipeline, but not having the, the investment in capital in, in bricks and mortar, and rather relying on the CDMOs to help them bring a molecule all the way through trial into commercialization and become their their partner essentially going forward. So it's been a big change over over a couple of decades of pharma, seeing how CDMOs have played a key role in, in advancing those smaller uh, companies and helping things move forward 
while still assisting the the larger pharma companies and you know helping with the mid tiers as they try to to really rationalize and figure out what makes sense to keep internal or in house versus what to outsource. So, what would you say in the most recent years are the most interesting technological advancements that you've seen and that are driving some maybe new trends in the market? Certainly, as as we're all aware, messenger RNA advances have been world saving, and that's been key in terms of supporting the the vaccine production as well as some of the new compa- or the new molecules that are being developed both in terms of the active pharmaceutical ingredient and the 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 bulk supply as companies like Lanza were advancing technologies to be able to assist Moderna Pfizer was developing a lot of these technologies internally on the fly basically to to be able to produce at a, a global scale but also the dosage for manufacturers who had to handle unique products with very, very specific cold chain uh, requirements became a technological advance and a, a way of manufacturing in a scale that we had just not seen before. But there are other areas of interest throughout the, the biopharma pipeline. We see cell and gene therapies are huge. They're poised to transform how some areas of illness are, are treated or even cured. And how those things are made and dispensed is going to create a lot of challenges for healthcare overall, but it's also going to create a a significant room for CDMOs. They have a major role to play in in manufacturing cell and gene therapies and some of these other modalities. And several of the members of my trade association have made multi-billion dollar investments in, in that space. One of the things I'm interested in, there's some of these sorts of treatments are going to be essentially, uh, vein to process back into to patient vein. And those are going to be administered and, and processed in hospital and seeing how those are going to be done, whether they're not shipped out or they're not being manufactured elsewhere in a conventional uh, uh, mentality that we have where there's a manufacturing site that radiates product outwards. Um, that's going to be an interesting change both for pharma and for, for the CDMO sector. Another area we see is ADCs, antibody drug conjugates. Those are on the rise again, and those require multiple highly specialized areas of expertise. And in some cases, that can go down to like the labeling and packaging even needs to be very, very specific compared to what goes into a a sort of standard small molecule drug or even a a regular biologic. So there, there are areas that uh, um, as far as pharma goes, have great promise for patients going forward, but are going to be uh, they're going to require very very niche technologies or very specific ones that both pharma and the the outsourcing world you know have to develop or have to make significant investments in going forward. Mm, absolutely, and yeah, that's a, a really good point that you mentioned having to have this very specific expertise for those areas. I know that we've seen from the pandemic where companies have really struggled with finding these experts and getting and in especially in talent acquisition do you think that will be quite a challenge going forward or is that something that we'll be able to recover from oh workforce development is a huge issue uh, at least i see it domestically because as part of my job we're working a lot with the US Congress and the, the White House but i hear the same things from other regions when it comes to where are we going to find the workers to do this 
and it's not just the PhD level people, but it, it goes all the way through the operations down to the, the warehouse level for some of these companies. You know, what we're seeing in the US, especially from the COVID period onwards, is a sort of restructuring of labor. There are a lot of issues going on in the American economy around this stuff, but we try to work with uh, again, both on a federal level and regionally and state by state with workforce development programs where we can get pharmaceutics education so that there are people coming through the the educational pipeline who are ready to, to work at some of these facilities and help make a difference in patients' lives. But yeah, it, it's a big challenge for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned there about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's also, as well as its challenges, it's triggered a massive overhaul in priorities in outsourcing and manufacturing. And as we've coming out of the pandemic now, how do you think that we can expect these trends and these changes to continue or to change further in the future? Well, I think you know, the number one issue to come out of this is really trying to understand supply chains for pharma you know, what it means to have a robust supply chain. We've heard an awful lot about onshoring as the the major issue for a lot of countries and a lot of regions. I always have to, to say, and I've said this on a million presentations and podcasts, but I'll repeat it again <laughs> here. Everybody has a shore. <laughs> you can onshore here, but that means you're taking something away from somebody else's area. And it's more driven on the API side of things, the active pharmaceutical ingredient end rather than dosage form. But we're seeing a lot more interest here in the U.S. in trying to figure out what the really and, – and I see the same thing paralleled in the EU – trying to figure out what the critical medicines are in, in key situations, understand what their supply chains are, and then figure out what can be manufactured. If not locally, then – the other term that comes up is uh, on a friend shoring basis, where you're working with trusted countries and trusted partners. In my dealings with the US Congress, sometimes it's referred to as opposed to adversarial countries, and then they mention a few by name. So there are issues around that because it's still, there are reasons why certain things got outsourced to where they've been outsourced when it comes to the ingredient side. And one of the key areas, and we've worked with a couple of agencies as well as think tanks on this is the intermediates and and really the excipients and key starting materials for a lot of these ingredients. The key starting materials often come from low-cost chemical industry regions, and the excipients that are used, especially with uh, oral solid dosage drugs, tend to be made in bulk. They tend not to be pharma-specific products. A lot of them can be made for you know food usage and other things. And those also tend to get made outside of quote unquote developed Western countries. So even if you're manufacturing the high value things or the APIs and, and all your dosage manufacturing is domestic, you still run into the issue of one thing can be missing and that product's just not going to be made. So, you know, we've, we've really seen a lot of this attempted at understanding what supply chains truly are. We're working with FDA and with other bodies to, to develop a clearer picture. And Congress empowered FDA to compel manufacturing facilities, both API and dosage form, to report the amounts of uh, product they're manufacturing every year for you know, individual drug products by national drug code. It's a beginning initiative now. The initial guidance for it wasn't great, and FDA is working on refining that and trying to, to get more compliance with it. But part of the idea is to build a map, not just of where the facilities are, which FDA currently has, 
but what's coming from those facilities? Because in some cases, a drug application might have three different API facilities listed and two different finished dosage form manufacturing sites listed. FDA doesn't know which ones are being used at any given time for a particular lot of product. And so trying to give them, trying to help them get better clarity on what the supply chain is and working with other uh, regulators to do this, that's been a key area. And then figuring out what the investment's going to be to be able to, to manufacture some things securely without impacting supply chains for other regions and other countries. Uh, so we're helping with part of that. And we see that as part of the initiative on a, a governmental level, but also individual companies are looking at making sure they have you know, secure supply chains, uh, that they have secondary suppliers, warm backups, et cetera. So there's a lot going on in, in that space in terms of trying to figure out post-COVID how to make what we make and keep it secure. Definitely. And I think from speaking to a lot of experts throughout the supply chain, they sort of finding that sustainability has its own part in securing the supply chain as well and that they're working that in and that also, you know, is another element to consider in terms of regulation and all of the different parties involved in the supply chain as well. So that's also, I feel, quite another, like an interesting point on on that, isn't it? Oh yeah, ESG is certainly critical. One of the things about the the whole for us, it's ESG, the environmental, social, and governance side of things. A lot of the CMOs in the world are privately held, but their client companies are public, and they're often reaching out to get you know essentially the the ESG ratings for their suppliers, tier one, tier two, and beyond. And so for our members, especially our smaller members, you know, they have to do a lot of legwork to make sure they're fulfilling their clients' needs when it comes to, to these ratings agencies, letting them understand what some of the environmental impact is and what sustainability efforts they can engage in based on the existing contracts they have and then for new work going forward. Yeah. So talking about the different regions then, have you seen how different regional market trends, you know, in the different areas across the world, how are they affecting the wider, more general outsourcing manufacturing trends? You know, it's interesting because there's there's more work being done in China and the, the Asia Pacific region when it comes to, to different types of manufacturing, both clinical and commercial, and then large and small molecule. You know, it's a question of how much is done in China for China as opposed to for export markets. We're seeing, you know, this this uh, shift in some areas of of especially the large molecule manufacturing as companies like Samsung uh, Biologics builds huge manufacturing footprint in Korea. Wuxi is also very large in China, but both of those companies are looking outside of their countries at other regions in which to manufacture. You know, partly to better serve clients in different different parts of the world. You know, we're seeing, as I mentioned with the onshoring issues, we're seeing a lot of investment in the EU. We see Sanofi spinning out its API business to build a standalone company there to try to enhance API offerings within uh, Europe. Canada, after COVID especially, realized they were lacking with a lot of manufacturing capabilities, especially in the vaccine and biologic space. And the Canadian government is, uh, they've worked with Moderna, but they're also working with a number of CDMOs to build up capacity in country for country. Those things will be, you know, expanded uh, or, or, you know, meant for export in normal situations, but at least to know that they have domestic capacity, especially on a contract basis, is becoming very important. 
Even in the U.S., BARDA, the Biomanufacturing Advanced Research and Development Agency, um, is working on a biomanufacturing consortium where they're trying to get manufacturing capacity built uh, for biologic uh, particularly, but also for small molecule for future pandemic and other biohazards. There's government interest, but there's also what the customers, uh, the, the license holders are looking for and what regions they're, they're working in. And a lot of this stuff ties into what we talked about with the advanced technologies. There are different types of drugs being developed. Some of them have very small patient populations. They don't need the big manufacturing footprint. Um, some of them also, as far as changing trends within industry, some of these things that are being developed are cures rather than treatments. And one of the aspects of, of developing a cure is that you're, you're going to hit most of the patient population in the first few years and not have an awful lot of product to make after that, depending on the, the, the indication. And that changes the business model for how a license holder works with a CMO if you are front-loading the, the manufacturing and then you know, just making a little bit going forward uh, after that. It's very different than we're going to have a, a five-year or 10-year agreement with you and just keep manufacturing X amount of, of product, depending on forecasts going forward. So those advances in the R&D pipeline affect what outsourcing trends are in some interesting ways. Mm, yeah, I hadn't even considered that. That's a really, really interesting point. I know that there's some some changes in regulations proposed across the EU to cut down the years on at what point generics can be, you know, made by other manufacturers and things. And there's a lot of debate around that at the minute, but I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't really considered that, that treatment versus cure. The big example I give is uh, Gilead when they had their cure for hepatitis C. Mm. They they treated almost the entire, well, they treated a vast majority of the population in the first three or four years. And they were done. They they outsourced to a couple of companies and they made huge volumes early on. Before the pandemic, it was the biggest uh, drug launch of all time. And then that that tail rapidly shrinks because A, competition came in with a, a couple of other companies, but B, the patient population didn't need the, the treatment seven weeks and you were done. So yeah, the, it's a different world when you, you do that. And I'm really interested in seeing how that sort of stuff works going forward. It's 12 weeks, not, not seven weeks. I, I mean, <laughs> someone will correct me on that if they hear it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know that's a really interesting, um, just, a, yeah, just a different perspective on that. It just completely changes the game, doesn't it? But it does promote outsourcing because those companies, when they know that's their business model, it, it gives them even less incentive to build their own capacity because they know it's going to be a few years and then the bricks and mortar will depreciate rapidly if we're only doing internal. So it's much, it makes much more sense to outsource when it becomes that sort of a, a, a model to, to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, you don't want to spend billions building a very specific niche manufacturing plant for something that's only going to be redundant in a few years' time. So how are you seeing businesses, uh, CDMOs, CMOs adapting to the changing trends? Are there, you know, specific cases where they're doing something really interesting or how are you seeing this adaption? Yeah, I, I tend never to name names because it means one member company of mine will be mad that I didn't mention them. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I will say overall, we are seeing expansion in the CDMO sector and, and it takes place in strategic areas, but we're seeing both internal expansion where companies are building new lines. And, and in some cases, we have a couple of startups that are advancing sterile fill finish facilities. They're going to be very interesting when those, those guys are operational. We're also seeing merger and acquisition activity to at times fill in gaps in certain product uh, offerings that that companies have. 
Because one of the things to understand about the CDMO sector is that uh, a lot of it is driven by private equity ownership. And private equity firms uh, tend to have five to seven year lifespans for their their particular funds. That means if they buy a CDMO, they're looking in all likelihood to sell it within that five to seven year stretch after improving it or, or engaging in whatever operational uh, enhancements they see when they, they acquire it. And this leads to, to challenges and, and opportunities because sometimes a long-term plan just doesn't have the time to, to come to fruition. They might want to do X, Y, and Z with a, a CDMO, but it just isn't going to, to work out in that time frame. And other times it means that certain uh, uh, firms and certain types of capabilities are available that would help fit into another CDMO's operations. So there's just very recently we saw a private equity firm take biopharma solutions from Baxter and at this point, it's going to be a standalone CDMO. We'll see where that ends up going over the the operations between Advent International and Warburg, who acquired it, whether they decide to keep it standalone, whether they decide to go public, whether they decide to, to merge it with another CDMO going forward. But it's a complicated business ecosystem in that respect. But there is plenty of room for growth, and we're seeing a lot of capital uh, expense from companies as well as new company launches. And there are technologies where you can get in without having to be the biggest scale. There, there's a lot that's going on in R&D, and you can kind of work up into to that world, focusing more on the D of development than the M of, of manufacturing, but build towards that goal as a client starts moving through the pipeline. Okay, brilliant. So what would you say are some of the key areas of particular innovation that you're most looking forward to following over the next couple of years? I'm interested in seeing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the cell and gene therapy side of things. You know how that works out, which drugs start to advance, which ones show signs of being cures versus therapies, and what some of our members are doing to help support those pipelines moving forward. There's also, as I mentioned, the ADC space. No one's a, a one-stop shop for that. So seeing how companies sort of intersect and work together to to help provide services. You know what can be coordinated and what things need to be sort of standalone. Uh, that'll be interesting. And then you know again, seeing how the changes in government policy and the reviews of supply chains and better understanding of of who makes what and where and why that I think is going to help define the CDMO sector as well as larger pharma going forward. And I'm glad to be here to see it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, those definitely sound like some really interesting aspects. I'm equally looking forward to seeing how they develop over the next few years. I didn't know if there was anything else you, you wanted to add, if there was anything you hadn't covered at all. No, just to, to stress that it's really important that this CDMO sector has an association like PBOA. This is an industry that historically hasn't had a seat at the table. And when I founded the association in 2014, the whole idea for me was just get us in front of FDA with a, a, a consensus and get them to take us seriously. And over time, we learned that you know working with regulators was one thing. Working with legislators uh, was also important with Congress and other legislative bodies. But one of the key aspects of the association that I found is really how important it is for CDMOs to talk to each other. And we help facilitate that with some working groups. There's a, a sense that this is a sector that works great with its customers. We really help drugs get to patients. We, we help things get through the, the R&D pipeline. 
but there's so much more that can be done and, and so much more that can be shared in terms of, of best practices and ways of, of really improving the process for everybody that, you know, again, I'm glad to, to help uh, facilitate that and be part of it. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Thanks. Hope to see you in Barcelona. Thanks again to Gil for joining me on the latest episode. I'm intrigued to see how the industry approaches the challenges, such as in talent acquisition and regulatory barriers. For more content on manufacturing and outsourcing, make sure you sign up to the CPHI online newsletter and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com. Thank you.